Well, I'm delighted to be back again. I think I've said this before, but <clears throat> you guys are wonderful, but you're also gluttons for punishment. And I, uh, I appreciate you putting up with me, and um, I count it a great privilege to be here. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to preface my message to, to this. I, I feel like God's been speaking to me about speaking to you from the book of First Timothy. And part of that is because y'all are looking for a pastor. <clears throat> and I, I would assume you've looked at some of those qualifications that are scattered through the book. And uh, I'm going to be here for five weeks straight, I think. And um, I'm going to do those, the first five chapters. And if you have me back after that, I'll finish with the sixth. But um, <clears throat> you, after hearing this, you may not want me back, but be that as it may. Now, I, I, um, when I started with you guys quite a while back, I, um, I told you that, uh, you know, Baptists save them, uh, Presbyterians teach them, uh, <clears throat> Methodists organize them, and then Episcopalians um, you know, socialize them, and then Baptists have to save them again. <clears throat> so I'm going to read to you from a little, uh, a letter that was written to the, uh, I think, to the Episcopalian, um, I guess, magazine or whatever. So take it for what it's worth, being from the Episcopals. But um, by the way, my folks were Episcopals, so I'm, <laughs> I have a little bit of knowledge here. <laughs> A certain church found itself suddenly without a pastor, <clears throat> and a committee was formed to search for a new man. In due course, the committee received a letter from a clergyman applying for the position. The letter went like this, abbreviated letter, but it went like this. Gentlemen, understanding that your pulpit is vacant, I should like to submit my application. I'm generally considered to be a good preacher. I have been a leader in most of the places I've served. I have also found time to do some writing on the side. I'm over 50 years of age, and while my health is not the best, I still manage to get enough work done so as to please my parish. As for references, I am somewhat handicapped. I've never preached in any place more than three years, and the churches I've preached in have generally been pretty small, even though they were located in rather large cities. In some places, I had to leave because my ministry caused riots and disturbances. Even where I stayed, I did not get along too well with other religious leaders in town, which may influence the kind of references these places will send you. I have also been threatened several times and been even physically attacked. Three or four times I've gone to jail for witnessing to my convictions. Still, I feel sure I can bring vitality to your church, even though I'm not particularly good at keeping records. I have to admit, I don't even remember all those whom I've baptized. However, if you can use me, I should be pleased to be considered. Now, how does that sound? Ideal candidate? <laughs> Hearing the letter read aloud, the committee members were ag aghast. How could anyone think that a church like theirs could consider a man who was nothing but a troublemaking, absent-minded ex-jailbird? What was his name? Paul. <laughs> Paul. You know, if we looked at that today, we might 
be going, how in the world could we have someone like that? But um, Paul was greatly used of God, wasn't he? And God, uh, well, actually, as a result of what Paul did, we can say definitively the world was changed. One man changed all of history. <clears throat> the book of 1 Timothy was written uh, by Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. He apparently at some point led Timothy to Christ, and then he took him along as his um, disciple, and he uh, grew him up in the faith over a period of time. Timothy was, at this point, was in charge of the church at Ephesus. Um, I got to go to Ephesus years ago, and uh, they took us to the amphitheater there, and at one point, I don't know if it was from during Timothy's ministry, but at one point, the town had become um, almost in completely uh, Christian, and ten to 20,000 people, they estimated, would meet in that amphitheater to hear the gospel. But that was probably 60, 80 years after uh, Christ's death. Um, <clears throat> Timothy had traveled with Paul on numerous occasions and was with him in prison in Rome. He'd been Paul's disciple and was now ready for pastoral ministry. Apparently, he was shy and soft-spoken, so Paul was has to basically call him to attention to lead the church there and to stand his ground as a young pastor. One of the things that you'll note if you read First and Second Timothy is Paul sort of nudges him. I mean, and they're pointed things that he says to them to try to get him, I think, to move along. And a uh, point being is God can use shy people as well as extroverts. You know, he can use both. And, and Paul saw that in this young guy. It's hard for us to believe that the new church of the first century had problems within the church, but they did, and Timothy was to help straighten that out. And so for a shy guy, having to deal with <clears throat> conflict in the church was probably pretty intimidating, if you would. Um, you might wonder, was there really trouble in the first church? Yes. Uh, the 13 epistles that Paul wrote all dealt with different kinds of problems in the church. And I, I, I would just like to note that churches have always and will always have problems because they're made up of sinners who are saved by grace and as a result have to grow in maturity. No one ever arrives and all are in the process along the line of maturity and sanctification for their personal lifetimes as well as the life of the church. When that process stops, the church will die. Now, I'd like you to think about that. Because discipleship, evangelism, uh, are the two priorities, really, of the church. And if those things come to an end in the church, the church eventually will die. It has no choice, almost, in one sense. The Dark Ages was a time in history when the church stopped reaching people and helping them become Christ-like. It got lost in bureaucracy, if you would. The uh, early Catholic Church became very um, bureaucratic. I don't know how else to explain it, but for a thousand years, they, they say the Dark Ages lasted a thousand years, and basically it was because the church stopped doing what it was supposed to do. Stopped teaching, stopped winning. It got lost in the politics of the day. I'm not saying we shouldn't address politics. Don't ever... <laughs> but, 
you can't get lost in politics. The word of God is, must be central. So consequently, the, ch- the church lost its witness and its collective wisdom and insight into the Lord's ways, and so darkness came for about a thousand years. Good pastors not only help the church to mature, but also the church to be salt and light so that no dark ages ever occur again. And I don't believe that will happen, but we're looking at some really strange times right now. And if the church doesn't stand up and do what it's called to do, I think we could enter into some really strange, stranger times, if you would. Please never forget that the church is in war always. Satanic forces are always at work to take us back and keep us in dark ages if possible. Paul is instructing Timothy and future churches and pastors as to how to grow people in Christ-likeness and godliness that will help Timothy and his church and future churches to be salt and light. And that's really what this whole book is about. It's how a pastor and a church should operate together and what actually um, God calls us to do. Consequently, some of the things that Paul says to Timothy are controversial today. And we're then. Um, and we'll look at some of those. I'm, I'm going to sort of hit them head on as we go through it. If you have questions about it, please, uh, please ask those questions. We'll look at them. I will give you my understanding of them, and then we can discuss them if you like and learn together. I, I believe that preaching should not be an end-all. In other words, you shouldn't just be sitting here taking this in and then walking away. You ought to take this in and then think about it and then discuss it amongst yourselves, if not with me or somebody else. It should be a stimulator for your growth. And um, unfortunately, not, most preaching is not like that. Most pastors do not have that going on in their churches. And I'd like to encourage you as you look for somebody to find somebody that you enjoy interacting with congregationally. Um, the average statistic, I'm going to run down a couple of rabbit trails and I'm going to try to get this done once, but the average statistic in America is by Tuesday, you don't, you don't remember 10% of what your pastor said to you. Unfortunately. But if you talk about it, if you interact with it, if you take notes and then you say, I, I got a question about this, you'll end up remem- remembering 50 or more percent of it. So there's little things you can do, and I would encourage you to do those things so that you can remember and grow. So let's look at this together. But first, I would like to just take a moment and pray and ask God for wisdom and insight. God, we, um, we thank you for this little book. It's been instrumental in the church for the last 2,000 plus years. We ask, Lord, that you would use it again to strengthen us and give us insight and wisdom as to how you want your church to function and the kind of leaders you want us to have. So, Lord, um, bless this time together. Fill us with your spirit. Thank you for the song we sang a few minutes ago. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Um, Pervade this atmosphere. Thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just a quick overview of the introduction. I'll read the passages as we go to them. I think they'll be up here. But... um, Verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. He, He led Timothy to Christ. That's why he calls him that. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So Paul introduces himself. He does this in all of his letters, one way or the other. Uh, a wonderful study is to go through and look at his introductions and understand why he said some of the things he did. We don't have time to do that today, but several things to note. Paul was an apostle by Christ's command. There are very few that have ever been called to be an apostle. Paul was one of them. I got this over. So he, he, um, he was called by Christ's command. Scholars agree that Timothy was uh, led to Christ by Paul and was his spiritual father and discipler. I would just jump from there and say, I hope that all of you are taking time to win someone to Christ and to disciple them. I think that's intimidating to, to folks, but it's a wonderful thing to do. You know, find somebody you enjoy being around, take them fishing, go hunting, go sewing, do whatever you do together, and let them see your life. And over a period of time, they'll start to ask questions. Um, we've had a, a German in our house all this last month, <clears throat> and he, uh, you know, he's not a Christian, and he's a, a delightful young man. He's a very smart, um, and he's been asking questions. And we have real open conversations. I thought he might come this morning, but he didn't get in until 2 o'clock last night because he went and got his girlfriend and uh, picked her up in Bozeman and brought her up to our house. And, um, so, but give yourself away somehow, and you'll find that as you do that, people will come to know Christ over time. So I think that's the calling of the church. Paul also expresses great love and concern for Timothy. He sends grace, mercy, and peace to Timothy. I think we ought to do that all the time to people. Uh, years ago, I, uh, I had moved back south, and I was living in a right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. We went to this church, and they had just asked this guy to become their preacher. And uh, I think we were there the second Sunday he was their preacher. And at the end of the service, he went... He went um, he stood, like, and this is a Baptist service, so it ends a little different than y'all's service. But he, at the end of the service, he stood out over the people. And he says, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you. And then he took the gist of his sermon and he just blessed them with it right at that point. I'd never heard anybody do that. It was amazing. So I started doing that at the next church I pastored, which was a First Baptist Pembroke. And at the, <laughs> at the end of my time there, when God had called us to come out here, one of the girls came up to me, and she came, she was t crying, and she says, who will now bless us? Because most pastors don't do that. And I'm not saying that's the end-all or be-all, but gosh, what an opportunity. We ought to be blessing one another. Another thing that I've done, and I would just encourage you to do that, is when someone helps me, like at a restaurant, or um, I go to Lowe's a lot, I'll end our conversations with, Lord, bless you. Just bless you. And people go, you know, they sort of, Hup. but then, thank you. I've had bunches of folks say, thank you. It's a little bit of salt, a little bit of light, and just open that up. Apparently, Paul was real good at that. He just blessed people. So now, let, let's look at the gist of the, pair of the hang on, I'm going to race through this. Um, so I have 30 minutes, and it might be just a little longer. If you, so I'm just, so... The first thing is Paul addresses this whole idea of teaching sound doctrine. Look at verses 3 to 8, or 3 to 7. He says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, 
nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which causes disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talking, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So now Paul begins to get down to what I call brass tacks here. Timothy is to teach sound, good, helpful, solid, biblical doctrine. Now the Old Testament was his text at that point, but as, as the Gospels were written, those began to be handed out amongst the churches in the first century. Um, these epistles began to spread out across uh, the church world in the first century, and that became part of their sound doctrine. They were not to teach fables or stories or men's ideas, but God's word. That's critical. A church will not survive without solid biblical teaching. Not genealogies. The Mormon church uh, took a passage in 1 Corinthians that said there'd be, there'd be baptized for the dead. So they do these enormous genealogies in order to make sure that everybody has been baptized. At one point, uh, this was years ago, I, I was involved in all this, or studying all, they'd gone back to 1552 or 1514, which was the earliest they could get records of. And they supposedly had baptized everybody. I had people that came to Christ in my church in Burley and They've been baptized 30 and 40 times because they're being baptized for the dead. That's foolishness. That's a kind of stupidity that the devil puts on people when they follow those kinds of ideas. They're not helpful or uplifting or growth-oriented. Biblical teaching and learning is not about how much you know, but it's about who you know. So biblical, good biblical teaching always leads us back to Jesus. It always leads us to God the Father and our love, first the love he has for us and then our love for him and then our love for one another. Good biblical teaching and sound doctrine leads us to relationship with Christ. And out of that relationship with Christ, we practice love. Look at verse 5. I sort of think this is the, the key of the whole passage and maybe the whole book. It says, now the purpose of the commandment is Love. Love. Teaching and pastoring and Bible study and discipleship are all meant to lead us into a deeper love of Christ. The purpose of all God's commandments are love. Is that the way you've been taught about the commandments? Think about that for a second. Because there was a time when I thought the commandments were to shackle me so that I couldn't do things. But in reality... The commandments, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, but then there's the other stuff in the Old Testament. You have to be careful about it. I'm not talking about legalism here. I don't want, I'm not going down that road right now. But the commandments were given to keep us from doing things that are destructive to us. What happens when you uh, steal? What happens when you lie? What happens when you don't honor your parents? Harshness comes into your life. I could go right on down all ten of them. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. If we make loving God our consuming passion, then the rest of our life will be blessed in wonderful ways. God is love, so he can do nothing but what is loving. 
God wants us to have a blessed and useful life. The key to that is love. I've, I've looked at this book. I went back through my notes. I think I've preached this book. This will be my third or fourth time. And uh, there's just so many good things in here. But the core of it is based around love. So uh, we're, all, <laughs> we're all wounded people in one way or the other. I've struggled with my um, faults and failures from the past. I, I had a weird upbringing and I brought all that to the table and if I can still learn to love my congregation and they can still love me, then we prospered. It was when we stopped loving each other that the, the, the problems in the church began to run rampant. Love's the key. It really is. It's all about God's love for us and how we express that to others. He gave the commandments because he loves us and wants the best of us. Jesus himself is the embodiment of love. God wants his people to live out a life of love. We do that by keeping a pure heart and a righteous, clean heart. This only happens when we have a clear and clean conscience. And he goes into this several times in this passage. We cannot love others the way God made us to when our insides are all messed up from unconfessed and hidden sin. It finds its way to the surface in our lives and makes messes uh, in our lives. Sound doctrine leads us to love like Christ. Verse 6, in that verse he's warning us. Paul is warning about what happens to a person when they stray from this basic concept. Their pride and self-love leads them to error, to idle talk that has no eternal benefit or usefulness. Consequently, he tells Timothy to be aware of such teachers and steer clear of them. As you look for a pastor, look for someone who loves God's word and is intent on teaching that and giving that to you. That's so important. Your verse 7 he says, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Your future pastor must be a teacher of sound biblical doctrine. He takes the word of God seriously as the inerrant, infallible word of God. He understands that God's word is always right. You hear me on that? God's word is always right and will always prove itself to be true. And he teaches it as such. In the 1840s, there was a teaching that went through the churches that much of the um, what we now call archaeology was not to be found, and so there was no Nineveh, consequently there's no Jonah. There was no um, Babylon, consequently there was no Nebuchadnezzar. And then in I think it was 1910 or 1890, a guy named Albright began to do uh, archaeological work. And that has continued to this day. And do you know that without exception, every single thing in the scripture has been proved true archaeologically? Without exception. The Bible is true, even down to the, the history of, of things, even down to the places of things. I just use that as one example. You can depend on it, and you want someone who will teach that to you as absolute truth. It is. Secondly, 
Sound doctrine is discovered by watching someone's behavior. So in verse 8 through 11, he begins to describe what Timothy's having to deal with and what's going on around him in the culture. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there is any other thing that, he is, contra- that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is con- committed to my trust. Paul states in verse 8 that we, that is you and me, can know whether a person is walking with the Lord by their adherence to the law of God. Now, this is one of those sort of sticky places for me because he says we're, the law is what shows us what's going on, but yet we're, we're going to uh, walk in the freedom that Christ gives us when he saves us. So what's sort of going on there? He states that the law is good, God is good, and he gave the law. The first law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The love of and for God is all-consuming and good. When we love God, we follow his commands. The Holy Spirit living inside of us yearns to do what pleases God, which is his commands. Christ said in John 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. But what's his first command? To love. It's all bathed in love. But to be righteous, a person is to keep the law. But we know that all men everywhere have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that because of the law. The law is, as Paul, I believe, says in Romans, the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But it also is what shows us our need. When, when, we, when it says... Uh, you're not to uh, commit adultery. That, that covers a whole gamut of sexual sins. You know, if you look on a, a Christ in the, in, the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look on a woman lustfully, you should pluck your eyes out. That's pretty severe. But what he's saying is, is don't get caught in all of that stuff. Keep your focus on God. But the law here, it tells us that we're sinners and that we need him. Consequently, the law shows us our need and leads us into that recognition that we need Christ who alone satisfies the law. But before Christ, we're caught in sin. And Paul names off some of the sins of his day. Um, and one of the commentators I read, he, he lined up those sins with, the, uh, uh, I think it was the last five commandments of the, the law. If you want to take the time to look at it, I'm not going to look at that right now. But in verses 9 and 10, he, he lists off all these things. You know, I don't know about you, but I found, as I read those things, in, very interesting. It seems like we still do that same stuff today. I mean, has man's heart really changed? You know, it's 4th of July. I, wanted, I thought about doing a 4th of July sermon. But uh, this fits it right now. Because this is where we are. Our nation has turned into this. The church has been silent, mostly. The church has stepped back and said, okay, well, you can just do whatever you want. That actually has a historical root in the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, if you, if you do the history of that. 
And here we are. Who's leading our nation right now? I'm not going to name names, but are they ungodly? Are they sinners? Are they unholy and profane? We wonder if they're murderers? Manslayers? Oh, our, our leadership doesn't indulge in fornication or adultery or we don't have anybody who's involved in sodomy, do we? We have become lawless. We have become lawless. And the, 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 there, there are consequences for that. Now, I, I'm not going down that road very far, but, but what is, he, he uses this word insubordinate. Do you, do you know what insubordinate means? It means defiant of authority, disobedient to orders. Have we been honoring our Constitution? We're being disobedient. We're being lawless as a nation, and it's going to have consequences. And let me just say here, this is where the church ought to be stepping in with sound doctrine. Do you know why the church is not taxed? I think churches have forgotten that. Do you know why we were not taxed? Our founders understood that we needed the word of God spoken into the government so that they would do righteousness and not evil. That's why they have a senate chaplain and all that. But listen to this. He, he who taxes controls. He who taxes is in authority. So our founders understood that if, if they taxed the church, they in essence were in charge of the church. This guy's from Germany. In, German, in Germany, everybody pays a, a tithe tax to keep up the Lutheran church, which is basically dead in Germany. The government makes sure the church sort of functions. We should be speaking into our society, speaking into our government. I believe that churches need pastors who are willing to do that. And literally about 90% of the pastors in our country right now are not willing to speak into the horrific things that are going on in our society right now, which is tragic. And if we're going to keep celebrating the 4th of July, which is our birth date and our day of freedom, we better get that straight because we're right on the edge of losing some of that stuff because we've allowed this kind of stuff to go on without addressing it. Enough of that. So, Paul ends this section by concluding that sound doctrine is wrapped up in the gospel, the good news, that we cannot keep the law and that Christ has come to pay the price for our sin and satisfy the law's demands. Now he gives himself as an example. He sort of gives a brief overview of his, of his testimony. So, here it is. Sound doctrine is displayed by a changed life. It's displayed by a changed life. Paul's life had taken a radical turn. He is no longer who he was. He's completely changed. He basically gives a recap of his testimony. He tells Timothy to remember who he was and what he did. Paul understands God's great forgiveness for him and is shown by allowing him to go into the ministry. He understood Christ's great forgiveness and how it has worked in his life. When I first became a pastor, I don't think I've told you this story before, but I had a woman in the church, and um, she had a pew down in the front, 
and, and, and she owned that pew. We changed to uh, chairs, and she took that pew out and took it over to Calvary Baptist Church in town. It was six feet too long for their entryway, but the pastor was afraid of her, and he put it in the entryway with it sticking out six feet. I am not lying. <laughs> this woman, she was a beast. She thought she ran the church. She heard about my past. I do not have a, a, a normal, I'm, I'm, I have a crazy testimony. I'll share it sometime if you want. She came to me and said, you should not be a pastor with a past like that. And I said, no. I said, God saved me. God's changed me. And this is what God's called me to. And so she subsequently left the church, which is probably good because she was tough. Eight years later, she's dying of cancer. And she called me and said, would you come and visit me? There had been several things that had gone on. And I went and visited her, and I prayed with her, and she apologized. You know, God uses wrecks like me to touch people's lives. Paul had been the Pharisee of Pharisees, but he was not, he did not know the God of the Old Testament, but he knew the Old Testament. He knew it backwards and forwards, but he didn't know God until he met him on the Damascus Road. You may find a man who has a crazy testimony like me, please Listen to him and see what God has done in his life to change him and make him into a, a crazy man for Jesus. Paul came to Christ out of his Jewish background. It was amazing what God did there. When I was, um, I'd been here about a year, and we were driving over to Missoula for a pastor's meeting, and I was with a guy named Sam Hughes who used to pastor at Calvary Baptist Church. He's, he, he's a, pretty much an intellect, and um, we were driving by, by the University of Montana. He says, uh, do you know who used to work at the University of Montana? I said, no. What are you talking about? He said, do you have, I, I believe it's Thayer's Greek English Lexicon, which I, had, I have it in my library, and it's, it's the definitive work for Greek, uh, uh, translation of the Greek New Testament into English. It's this thick. It's a book like this. Um, everybody at my seminary had to have that book. He said, did you know that Thayer used to teach at uh, Montana? I said, no, I didn't know that. That's amazing. I said, he's a Greek scholar. I got his book. He goes, yeah. I said, did he know Jesus? He said, no, he didn't know Jesus. I said, he knew every single word of the New Testament. Every single word. He, had, he knew whether it was a verb, an adverb, a noun, an adjective. He knew how it was parsed. He knew every single bit of it. Paul knew it all, but he didn't know Jesus. I believe Thayer, I hope he knew Jesus by the time he died. You can know it all. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have that relationship, and Paul displays that in this, I'm not going to read, the, well, let me just read it real quick. He says, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy, um, I I did it ignorantly in unbelief, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I always read that and I go, man, I wonder if he beat me. I mean, I can't imagine. I was, I was, a, I was a mess. 
However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for, for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He gives that benediction right there at the end because he's so enthralled. Here he's probably at the end of his life, and he's still enthralled with the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. Sound doctrine is displayed by a changed life, and his life was radically changed. I would challenge you as you look, make sure you check guys' testimonies out. Make sure they have been radically changed. They can be changed at eight. I read this one illustration. This, this guy said, you know, when, you, when your heart gets changed when you're young, it's like stepping across a small creek. When your heart gets changed later in life, it's like stepping across a large river. <laughs> and some of those guys, I've, I knew guys who were in their 30s and 40s who got saved, radically saved. They jumped across that river and they're wholehearted for Jesus. Find somebody who's on fire like that and this church will flourish. And I want this church to flourish. Last thing, sound doctrine directs the submitted life. Look at verse 18. It says, This change I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. Some have even which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenius and Alexander I hope I pronounced those right whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme Paul charges Timothy to continue on with what he had begun in Ephesus the word charge here comes uh, here is the same word as a command Paul, in essence, is commanding Timothy to take charge of the church and to make sure it's protected. Timothy is to submit to that as if he was submitting to God himself. He was to teach proper doctrine and to stand against improper beliefs or teaching, which apparently Hymenius and Alexander were two such teachers. They had multiple teachers in the church. And Can you imagine Timothy having to step into that and saying, you guys, get out of here. And then publicly handing them over to Satan. I don't know if you ever looked at that in the scripture, but Paul did that several times. We probably should be practicing that again because it ended up in good usually. When you let someone just live out their life, it's a kind of judgment when you allow someone to end up in Satan's grip. I lost my place, excuse me. <laughs> To submit, <laughs> he was to submit to the task. No one knows exactly what prophecy was spoken over Timothy's, Timothy's life, but it apparently had a great impact on his life and opened a door for him to feel compelled to follow Paul and to be involved in ministry. It's amazing to me how what one person can say and say something, and when we realize it's from the Lord, can have a tremendous impact on our life and ministry. I've had people speak into my life, and it's just, it's amazing. You probably have too. Paul states that he's to make a good warfare. Please don't forget that we're involved in a warfare. That's not been taught in the church in the last 100, 150 years, hardly at all. But we are in a constant 
warfare. We've been, most of the church has been taught that we're supposed to feel good and it's sort of a kind of psychological, I'm not picking on psychologists, but it's kind of psychological gospel. We're involved in a war. And we're seeing right now, again, in our nation, we're seeing the blatantness of Satan come out in front of us. Paul gives two primary weapons for, for Timothy to fight with. They're a good faith and a clear conscience. We can have a clear conscience when we confess our sins. First John 1 John 1.9, I, I, I ran ahead of myself, but 1 John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you sin, which you will, we all sin, Ask God to forgive you. Don't, don't stand there and stiffen your back and your neck. Ask God to forgive you. Look for someone who loves Jesus, but also is willing to admit that he fails at times. And when that happens, good things will happen. So here are four guidelines for you guys to use to find the right man to lead you. All involve sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is absolutely key. I'm sure that you're already focusing on most, if not all, of these. I believe that in order to find the right pastor, you have to be living these kinds of things out yourself. God has a way of attracting like-minded people. You'll most likely have someone that is similar to who you have become. So become what you want to have in a pastor. Walk with God. Be fervent for him. Seek him with all your heart. And, and good things will happen. So let's pray for a minute. Father, thank you for Paul's admonition to Timothy. He had so many good things to teach him. Sometimes I wish I could have just been there and uh, listened to Paul myself and, and seen what he did. But we have these little letters. We have the Bible. And so I pray you'd enliven that to us, you'd open it up to us, and that we would mark our way by it, that we would walk with you according to your word. Bless this congregation. Fill them with your spirit. Give them wisdom and bring the right man to them. A man who's enthralled with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.